I have absolutely no idea what we're doing here, or what I'm doing here, or what this place is about, but I am determined to enjoy myself. Now you want to talk about reading? Let's talk about reading. Let me tell you of the days of high adventure. The book served as a passageway to the evil worlds beyond. Ready to go, Doc? Oh, yes, yes, my dear fellow. I'll just check the gyroscopes. Hello, and welcome back to the Appendix and Book Club. Today we are discussing J.R.R. Tolkien's The Return of the King. I am Jeff, and with me today is the rightful heir to the throne, Hoy. Hello. Great to be back. And also joining us today is our returning guest, Daniel J. Bishop. Hello. Good to be back. My... Oh, good. Go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> our first three-timer. Got to get you, get you the jacket. Well, it is a trilogy, right? Yeah, indeed, indeed. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So glad to be with you here with you, Daniel, at the end of all things. <laughs> <Ooh>. <laughs> so as usual, the first thing we're going to do is chat about which edition of the book we're working with. This is the one that I've got today. It is the 1965 paperback with the really trippy, fun, cool Barbara Remington painting on the cover. Uh, Hoy, which one are you working with? Uh, today, I was working with two. I was working with my Kindle copy and the one from the early 2000s with the Alan Lee trade back cover with the Minas Tirith, sort of a watercolor painting of that. Nice. Yep. Very cool. And yeah. I know, Dan, I'm sure you have every edition. Um, I, I don't. I mean, I've got the uh, 94 Harper Collins edition with a green ring on the front and some embossed stuff, including the white tree. Aha, aha. Which is actually black because it's embossed. Very good. I did find it was easier to read the appendices, which we'll talk about later, in the print copy than the e-book copy, which is my my primary reason for pulling out my trade paperback. That's not shocking. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so before we dive into the library, let's take a quick look at our Hygaxian word of the day. Hamlet. Hamlet. Uh, So the word that I selected today is the word Hamlet, which is found on page 73 of my edition. And it says, lights went out in house and Hamlet as they came and doors were shut and folks that were afield cried in terror and ran wild like hunted deer. And a Hamlet is a small settlement, generally one smaller than a village. Uh, Daniel, did you have anything you wanted to contribute to this section? Uh, no, I don't know if I mentioned when we were doing the last thing, the van, because Tolkien does talk about them riding in the van quite often in mm-hmm. this book. And back long, long time ago, when I first tried to read it, when I was a uh, preteen, that really confused me because I had no idea where they were getting the van from. <laughs> Whereas a van, a van is a group of people riding together, which is where we get the word from. Right. But... That is so funny. I remember also as a kid when I would watch period pieces and somebody would say, like, I'll call on you. I'm like, but they don't have telephones. How are they calling on each other? I didn't realize that used to be, you know, I'll I'll come by and visit was I'll call on you. Yeah. (laughs) It's funny how some of those words change their meanings over time. Right, right. Uh, But yeah, so let's go ahead and dive on into the library. So, Daniel, I know that you adore this entire trilogy. That is uh, true. So I guess I'll ask, where does The Return of the King fall in your love uh, for the three novels? Um, honestly, I don't think that you can read The Return of the King on its own. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. It, it requires the building to get to there. 
by itself, it wouldn't stand. Mm-hmm. But because it is a conclusion of the other stuff, the ending of it is actually the best part of the entire trilogy. Sure. And I'm talking about even after the, uh, I mean, like the part with uh, Gollum and Sam and Frodo on Mount Doom, obviously. But the scouring of the Shire. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I think it, it is the thing that ties the entire trilogy and everything that went to, together before uh, together. You know. Yes. Yeah. And it's the fundamental misunderstanding of the Peter Jackson films to leave that part out. A fundamental misunderstanding. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I agree with that completely because you know I I read the trilogy when I was a teenager and I've just finished reading the trilogy again for the second time in my life. And I would say it's almost in the middle of those two times of my reading that I watched the movies. So I really, when I watched the movies, I did not remember the whole scouring of the Shire section. And reading this third book now, and um, after kind of having the movie ending more concretely in my head, I felt that the ending of the trilogy um, of the book was so much stronger with the inclusion of the uh, of the scouring of the Shire because you know in in the movies it it there's it's kind of has this like Disney-fied end where we're focusing on you know Aragorn taking the throne and his marriage and now Sam is with Rosie in the movie in the movie it's all very kind of like there's there's some sadness to it but for the most part it's very like everybody's cheering and clapping kind of a thing. Mm-hmm. And in the Return of the King the novel you really get the sense that like the world is forever altered by the events that have happened. Right. And what happens to Aragorn and what happens in Gondor is what happens to the large people in the setting. You know, like the 1%, so to speak. Right. Whereas what happens in the Shire, what happens in Bree, that's everyone else. And right. being written on the uh, on the tale of World War II, where all the history and, you know, everything is about this offensive or that offensive and what happened with the big on the big level for everyone who was involved in that, what happened on the small level is really the thing that's important because mm-hmm. mm-hmm. that's and, where we live. And especially whereas world war one, which was Tolkien's literal war was very much sort of constricted yes. along a certain line. And yes, of course there was lots of civilian casualties. It wasn't a total war the way that world war two was where you had, you know, 20 million Russian civilians, you know, Soviet civilians dying, um, you know, all of Eastern Europe and France and all those areas de- devastated. And here you see the stakes as small as they are, strike home a lot more in the Scouring the Shire. Oh, three hobbits died here at the side of this road here when the sort of the half orcs broke through the the, the line of the the wagons, right? And it's, yeah. it's a very real stakes, and, and this is what they have all been fighting for ultimately. What's the Shire? And it also shows the growth of the characters in mm-hmm. a way that I don't think the film even comes close to showing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, Mary and Pippin have become far more martial. Right. Far more confident, far less buffoonish. Right. Uh, Sam becomes the mayor of Hobbiton. Mm-hmm. And Frodo becomes more like Gandalf. Mm-hmm. Right. He has that wisdom. And, and Frodo is a very clearly also has is suffering from shell shock, PTSD, whatever you want to call it, but in sort of more mythical terms. And it's, you know, his wound will never heal. The, the wound that the Nazgul, you know, dealt yes. him, you know. And, and, you know, missing the finger and all that stuff like that. But if you think about, if you go back, way back to the beginning, right? Soren learns about the Shire because of Gollum. Frodo says, it's a pity Bilbo didn't kill him. Sam says, or sorry, Sam, Gandalf says, 
pity Stata's hand and goes into that beautiful long speech. And at the end, with Saruman, it's clear that Frodo understood now what Gandalf meant far more than anyone else in the book. Mm-hmm. And also, interestingly, that uh, the people who are potentially suffering the most are the ones who didn't despair, which is the hobbits, right? It's the high and the mighty. When the high and the mighty despair, it's when things go sideways. Essentially, Denethor, right? Yes. Um, uh, I would argue that maybe even uh, Saruman, ultimately, he was originally the, the, the mightiest of the wizards, right? And he must have despaired, and that's why he turned to the dark side, so to speak. Um, that would That's a very reasonable uh, yeah. reading of it. Mm-hmm. What's also interesting to me is how, you know, Merry and Pippin, when they return, they're the they're the heroes in the Shire. Right. You know, we've spent all this time with Frodo and Sam. And from our perspective, Merry and Pippin have done great deeds, but they're not the heroes of this story. But as far as the Shire folk are concerned, it's Merry and Pippin who are the great heroes. Yeah. They don't understand what the entire thing is. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Their view of the story is very limited to what happened in the Shire. Right. Mm-hmm. They can see the externalities of Merry and Pippin being, you know, now uh, a good three to six inches taller than all the other hobbits, you know, with their Gondorian and, you know, the, the, the gear, Rohirrim, the Rohirrim outfit, yeah. Yeah, outfits and the shields. And to the rest of their days, they walk around with shields and armor and, you know, and sort of just like sort of that glory that, you know, uh, you know, walking around with your poppy or your Victoria Cross, you know, after World War One or World War Two, you know, on, on Veterans Day or Remembrance Day that might come across like that. Um, yeah, and they were well-to-do to begin with. Mm-hmm. Right, right. Because I they're, mean... Yeah, they're, they're, gentle, they're gentlemen, right? Yes. They, yeah. They rolled square on the uh, occupation. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, yeah, it's interesting. And I, I think, remember, I remember you, Daniel, you talking about them, potentially like the whole original book of them up to Weathertop or even even to Rivendell, they're still, uh, that's the final, right? And then they sort of yes. level up by the time they reach Rivendell. And so they may be level one through most of it. And then by the time they come back, they're, say, level three in, you know, maybe DCC terms. And then in, uh, in B- BX well, terms, maybe level four, you know? <laughs> in, in DCC terms, Tolkien is a remarkably gentle judge. Mm-hmm. He only killed one character. That's true. <laughs> That's true. Very fair. Yes. Well, absolutely. two, but he let one come back. Right. right. <laughs> <laughs> now, looking at the very end of uh, not the not the book, but the, kind of the end of the quest where we've got Sam and Frodo at Mount Doom taking the ring uh, inside and Frodo in that last moment is um, unable or unwilling to part with the ring, puts the ring on, turns invisible, Gollum attacks and I'm qu- I'm curious. What do you guys think uh, the story of redemption here with Gollum? Did Gollum find redemption, even though it's like an accidental redemption? Um, did Frodo ultimately fail in his task, or was this task just to get it there? And Sam was the one who completed it. Kind of. What is your take on what happened in that kind of final climactic moment? I think that Gollum redeems the world, but did not redeem himself. Okay. <laughs> right. And that each of them had the role to play. So there were each, uh, uh, um, all three of them there potentially redeemed the world briefly. But if any one of them was missing, it would not have happened. There is a point where Gollum tries to get the ring earlier. And Frodo tells him he will never have it. And warns him that if he attempts to get it, that the ring will betray him. And he would be forced to follow his command. And he would tell him to cast himself in the fire. Which is exactly what happens. Mm-hmm. So 
did Gollum redeem himself? No. No, I don't think so. I, I think that he, in the end, gave in to Gollum rather than Smeagol. Mm-hmm. But it turned out that Gollum was what the world needed. Right, right. So one of the things I really wanted to do with our discussion of the Lord of the Rings was to have very different voices on for each each episode and then also have the Daniel J. Bishop perspective on. Now, the other person we had asked to do this episode um, had to had to cancel on us. So th- we're only going to have Daniel J. Bishop, a Daniel J. Bishop episode. Oh, no. But since that was my goal to, to kind of do both. What I ended up doing is I did a little bit of reading and read some um, some various uh, different perspectives online about the return of the king. And I would love to present some of these perspectives to the two of you for the t- for the three of us to discuss a little bit, if that's sure, okay. Sure. Go for it. So the first one I found was on a um, Christian website called Boundless.org. And I don't know much about Boundless.org, except that they've got focus on the family mentioned in their in their header. Uh, so I can make some assumptions about what their what their deal is. But this is a um, article from 2001 by Roberto Rivera y Carlo, and he's talking about how um, J.R.R. Tolkien is um, is 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 a Catholic. Yes. And that this story is essentially foundationally built upon his his Christian beliefs. And one of the things that's kind of interesting in the way this person talks about it is he specifically says, this isn't to say that the Lord of the Rings is a kind of Christian allegory. On the contrary, Tolkien disliked allegory, considering it to be a rather crude literary form. Instead, we see the values and beliefs in The Lord of the Rings as the ones that set it apart from other works of fantasy and from the ancient myths Tolkien admired. Um, These are examples of his Christian faith. An example is the depiction of evil in The Lord of the Rings. Tolkien demonstrates the way evil insinuates itself into the lives of characters in a clearly Christian way. Evil in in the novel doesn't overpower, it seduces. How? By using our idea about what's good against us. What do you guys think about that? I don't I don't know enough about theology to make an argument with, but I don't think it's wrong. I mean, certainly Denethor thought he was doing good until he was sort of his mind was warped in the sort of at the very end with despair. I mean, he thought he was doing right by Gondor, right? Um, and that he didn't think that, you know, Aragorn or whoever, any of these people who came along were legitimately gonna do better for Gondor than he was gonna do. Um, so and it's only at the very end that he thinks that, oh, he can sort of either challenge or fully, you know, be engulfed by the flames of, you know, Mordor. Mm-hmm. But uh, if that was completely true, though, yeah, that perspective was completely true. There are an awful lot of orcs and siege weapons being used on Gondor for somebody who's not trying to overpower you. It's true. So, yes, there is seduction, but there's also power being wielded. And the despair of Denethor is because he sees the power of Mordor. Right. Right. He looks into the Palantir, and Soren lets him see what he wants him to see. Right. He sees all the uh, power being marshaled on the other side of the uh, the mountains and coming up the coming up the, the river and everything like that. Yeah. And does not realize that the power coming up the river is, in fact, their own forces. Mm-hmm. That would be Aragorn at the time in the uh, ships of the Corsairs of Umbar. Right, right. He can't literally... That is sort of... Uh, um, Interesting too. He can't literally, the Palantir can't literally lie. He can't literally see uh, untruths, but how he sees them is what affects yes. his state of mind. There's, there's a degree of trickery mm-hmm. to the way evil works in The Lord of the Rings. Mm-hmm. 
um, there is a where there is seduction. Um, certainly, Ted Sandyman, mm-hmm. back in the Shire, back in the first book, is presumably already an agent of Saruman mm-hmm. uh, because of what you see in the scouring of the Shire, plus what you get in the beginning. And we know from midway through that Saruman has had contact with the Shire long enough to have his own tobacco there. Right. His own brand. Um, and yeah. So there is seduction, yes, but there is also direct power. Right, right. And in fact, Sauron is not capable of seducing ever since the end of the Second Age, ever since the fall of Numenor, right? Because he can no longer bear for a fair form, right? That's So therefore he can only wield naked power or, you know, uh, trickery, but not, not actual, you know, seductiveness of evil. Yeah, when you look at... Uh... Saruman, you're getting kind of an idea of what Sauron must have been like before his fall. And um, deeper into the article, it goes on to talk about how in traditional fantasy fiction, there's this idea of good and evil as being opposite forces. But according to this writer, Tolkien's good and evil is a Christian version of good and evil, where evil doesn't actually exist. Evil is simply a perversion of good. Do you think that there, um, that you would agree with that sentiment in terms of how Tolkien approaches evil? Meaning it's not an external metaphysical force that is entirely inherently evil, that it's, it's something that was originally good and that is, is sort of twisted is what you think his take is? I believe that's the argument he's making, yeah. that, that's, that, that that would be the Christian view and that is Tolkien's view of what evil is. Hmm. Partly, I would say to have that discussion, we have to get into the Silmarillion. Okay. Right. Right. Um, Which I'm not qualified to do because <laughs> I haven't read it. <laughs> because in in the Silmarillion, in, when they were talking about the uh, music of Anwe, the evil comes from outside the world and keeps trying to corrupt the music, which is almost like the history of the world, the pattern that, uh, that, they, that the world's supposed to follow. But every time evil does it, it just makes the pattern stronger. Because the reaction to the evil is a greater good than the good that would have been there without it. So the evil is almost necessary in order for the good to sort of... For maximum good, yes. Yeah, maximum strengthened and tested. And that's a, that's a phrase that's constantly used um, in this trilogy. You know, the test, at the test. right? That's, the, those are, that's literally Aragorn's last words to, um, to Arwen as he lies down, you know, prepares to die, right? You know at the test do, shall we fail our last test essentially because she she doesn't want him to go this is in the appendices jeff and i know you haven't read all of them but this is the one appendix that's ve- really very much worth reading is the story of aragorn and arwen in the appendix um and you know she wants to repent and and go into the west and you know be immortal he doesn't, doesn't want him to go yet and he's like no this is the last test for us right you know do we pass beyond the world you know and, and stay true to what the higher being the gift that man was given to be able to you know escape the world so I have another perspective I would love to throw out here for you guys to discuss as well, for us to discuss as well. And this is a article written by David LaFontaine, and the um, essay is entitled Sex and Subtext in Tolkien's World. And in this little section of the article, he has a subheader for this little section. It's Frodo and Sam, Hobbits in Love. And he says, um, what does he say here? He says... Tolkien's vision of the way of life of hobbits is crystallized in the first book in the trilogy, The Fellowship of the Ring. The hero, 
Frodo Baggins is a confirmed bachelor, like his older relative Bilbo Baggins, and possesses the characteristics of a lonely homosexual man in that he has made a comfortable life for himself in a world where finding love is not an option. Then later in the article, he goes on to say, in one of literature's greatest romantic moments, Tolkien slows time to a standstill as Sam, heedless of the legions of orcs poised to kill them both, savors the sweetness of cradling Frodo's nude body in his arms. Sam felt like he could sit in that endless happiness. This fleeting moment of bliss may have been personally meaningful to the author as Tolkien enacted his own sexual fantasies about holding and caressing the naked body of a man who he trusted and loved, in Tolkien's case, C.S. Lewis. So then he goes on to make the case that um, Tolkien and C.S. Lewis had this unrequited homosexual love for one another, even though Tolkien was a married man and it was likely never actually played out. Um, So first I want to say I love that both of these articles um, are very pro the Return of the King, and both of these art authors think that the Return of the King is something that is um, um, advocating for their perspective. But I'm curious, what do you guys think about this particular take on Hobbits and Love? Hmm. I'll leave that one to you, Daniel. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> well, I have no problem with it being left to me. Um, two things. The first one is that. Tolkien is basing his writings on um, like the medieval writings and a lot of the Edas and things like that. Um, in fact, his, his story is almost an interweave, a kind of thing like the chanson suggests would be that we don't tend to see in modern novels. And in those, same-sex relationships could be very loving without necessarily being romantic. So that's one possibility. The other possibility is that the author is correct. I don't think that there's anything in the text that can tell you which one is the case. Yeah, I think that's true. Mm. And what I also think is interesting about these two perspectives is that both of these authors could be correct. It may be true that the Christian um, approach to his um, myth building and world building um Let me rephrase that. It could be true that his approach to myth building, world building was informed by his Christian beliefs. And it may also be true that uh, Tolkien was harboring unrequited romantic love for C.S. Lewis and was exploring that in the um, in the unrequited, unrequitable love between um, Frodo and Sam. I also just like to say it doesn't really matter largely what Tolkien intended when he was writing it. Because right. I think that the that this work uh, that he put so much into actually is larger, probably, than the author itself. I don't think that there is a reading that has to be correct. Right. I think that the reader throws themselves into it as well right. and gets out of it what they put into it. So that, I mean, we know that there was a Christian perspective because that's in his letters. Uh, he didn't write in his letters that he had unrequited love for C.S. Lewis that I know of, but that doesn't make it untrue. Right. Yeah. right? And because at that time, he would be very unlikely to have put that in his letters. Yes. Right. And even allowing for if that particular um, interpretation is wrong, certainly the fact, just the closeness, this is essentially a, um, a moment of like near death in war, right? The closeness yes. that Tolkien would have experienced in the trenches with the soldier to the left of him and the soldier to the right of him would have had that same feeling, whether it were, whether or not it was erotic, that love for your fellow man, you know, in that moment of near death. 
right? So, and Daniel also, as you say, because literally probably hundreds of millions, if not a billion or more people have read this, read this you know, trilogy and seen it in film, that um, combined level of interpretation and appreciation of what people bring to it much more so than some pulp novel that's only been read by 100,000 people and forgotten, you know, 50 or 60 years ago, right? That weight that we, we bring to it would mean that, yes, those interpretations, what it means to you is maybe more important than what was intended in the book. Yes. Yeah. And there is no reading that I can think of that does not include the fact that they do love each other. Right. What form that love takes, you can interpret as you like. But they definitely love each other, and Sam loves Frodo enough to hand him the ring back. And there are zero instances where somebody can easily do that, right? Apart from there, yeah, absolutely, right, right. So the last bit of outside perspective I would love to throw in the conversation, and then it can just be our thoughts moving forward. Is um, we had somebody comment on our the last episode the three of us did together, and so I want to go ahead and read that comment, and then we can discuss that. So this was a comment by Gwyn Was, uh, G-W-Y-N-W-A-S. I'm not sure if I'm saying that correctly. And Gwyn Was says, love your podcast. Keep it up, guys. However, I, I do want to comment on Moorcock's critique of Tolkien. I think you guys might have minimized the, this issue. I grew up on Tolkien from age 10 on. Tolkien was my religion for many years of my life, but I think Moorcock is absolutely right. I don't believe that Tolkien was a mirac- was a malicious racist, but his work was nevertheless imbued with it. He obviously was not a literal fascist, but race as a vector of good and evil pervades his work from beginning to end. Racism can be found in much of the literature of the era, but Tolkien, I believe, did a great disservice to his fans by cementing cosmological good and evil into his concepts of race. In an era when the real world was struggling with and coming to terms with our history of racism and its consequences, Tolkien gave us a fantasy world where we could freely indulge our basest xenophobic impulses in imagining a world where there is a race that is nearly all good and superior, and there is another race that is nearly all bad and inferior. As a mixed-race person, I probably have a harder time dismissing this. I loved Tolkien as a child, but as an adult, I see the deep harm of his mythology. I cannot agree that Tolkien's token humanizing of one or two individuals of a race he created as as, as demonized inferiors in any way absolves him. It does not. He promotes the idea of racial superiority and belief in racial good and racial evil. He aimed to fuse his love of pagan myth with his Christian beliefs, but in the process, I believe he created a socially irresponsible nightmare. The old pagans may have believed in right makes right, but they did not imbue it with this Christian idea, cosmological good and evil. As a person of Eastern extraction, I find this denigration of Easterlings to be offensive, but I can forgive him that as the bias of his time and place. I actually believe the good and evil imbued in his fantastical races to have been far more problematic influence on ensuing ensuing generations of fans. What justifies guilt-free murder hoboism more than totally demonizing a race of sentient beings? Uh, so that's the last bit of outside um, perspective I would like to uh, inject into this episode. Mm. Uh, so what do you guys that's think a good about bit. this? Yeah. yeah. I, I don't think it's wrong, but I also don't think in any way that Tolkien would ever have imagined that his work would be so influential as to be like the shape of fa- fantasy for the next two or three generations. You know? <laughs> so yeah. 
Um, there's an interesting uh, uh, sort of expansion on this by uh, a game writer, James Mendes Hodes, who uh, does a lot of sensitivity reading, and he's done a lot of stuff with, um, I think, Seventh Sea and stuff like that. It sort of expands on the idea of whether the orc as a martial race is an inherently racist concept. Um, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll throw it back to you, Daniel. I have more thoughts, but I'll throw it back to you, Daniel. That is not a bad perspective. Like, I'm not going to really disagree with it. I would mm-hmm. like to point out that the elves are, in fact, the source of all of the problems that Middle-earth faces, both in the Silmarillion. Well, I guess um, Ungoliant, the big spider in the Silmarillion, is a big problem, too. Yeah. And Morgoth is a big problem. But the entire thing with the Silmarils is based upon the actions of the elves. They are not all good. Um, the elves in The Hobbit are not all good. I mean, I'm assuming we're talking about the elves as being the all-good race here. Right. The three rings for the elven kings were, in fact, made by the elves. The elves taught Sauron how to make rings. And their goal, according to Tolkien in his letters, was to hold time back and prevent change from occurring. In other words, to order the world the way that they wanted it which is exactly what Soren is trying to do. So the sin of Soren and the sin of the elves is the exact same sin, which is why when the ring is destroyed, they have to leave Middle-earth. Mm-hmm. So they are not all good. Yeah, in fact, the elves are quite static, right? They are the ones who cannot leave the world, whereas the humans, are the men have been given that gift, right? That they can go beyond the circles of the world, and no one knows what goes on afterwards. And, of course, the orcs are also elves. Right, they're malformed, twisted, mutated by Morgoth. Is that correct? Yes. Uh, yeah. I mean, in the second book, when you know you have the elven elixir that heals, and then you have the orcs have the same thing. Right. There's burns going down, but it does the yes. same thing. Right. And I think these are all great examples of how, um, kind of what Daniel was saying earlier, how this, this work is bigger than anything Tolkien um, intent, uh, uh, or, or this work has become something much too big. It's it's no one correct thing. It's no one right thing. Right. And it also, I think, illustrates that we all bring to the text our own life experiences. Right. If you're a Christian who's reading this, looking to find um, a, a confirmation of your Christian belief, you may find that. Right. If you're a gay person who's reading this and you're excited to see a beautiful relationship between two men and you want to take that as a sexual relationship and then in turn infer that perhaps J.R.R. Tolkien also had these feelings, you can also do that. And if you're a mixed race person who has Eastern heritage and you're reading this and you're feeling profoundly uncomfortable by the way that um, that, um, uh, people of Eastern descent are are kind of... um, paired with uh with with the evil beings in this in these stories you can also very very much walk away with the sense that like this book this story is a very um irresponsible one in terms of race depictions so like all of these things can be true all at the same time and it can still be a magnificent piece of fiction so one more thing about the east because we know that the man of harrod and the and the and the uh, um, they uh, do say easterlings right right, easterlings and all that um but they're depicted as having their pride Right. They are and that they're although they've been under Sauron's yoke, they've had their pride. They're the ones who will actually fight to the last because they're not just pure creations like the way the orcs are. Right. Like, um, although a few of them eventually negotiate and are are on their way. But that the the people, uh, especially the people of Umbar, are originally colonized by the Numenorians. And so their response to the Numenorians is completely plausible and logical. It's like, no, you came out of the sea and took our land. Right. And subjugated us for generations. 
of course we're going to fight back, right? And so they, even in their little bit of there, there's a little bit of anti-colonialism, even though they're the, you know, nominally the bad guys. But <laughs> Sure. <laughs> we do know that two wizards went off to the east. Right, the blue wizards. We don't know what happened in the east at all, apart from the fact that the people in the west are aware that some of them are helping Soren. Right. Uh, but that's also, I think, is actually really Tolkien trying to write a mythology for the West. Mm-hmm. I, I don't think it's any accident that these um, alternative cultures to the Western culture are tricked into working with evil because they're not Christian. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, I don't think that's an accident in, in Tolkien, and I think that actually is a fair criticism. Mm-hmm. If we are writing a science fiction version of The Lord of the Rings, because Morgoth takes the elves and turns them into orcs, you could say, well, what if you genetically engineered people to have these traits? Would that still be the same kind of a problem? Right. They don't have a choice necessarily. And they don't, in fact, they don't have a choice. That's the, you know. Well, yeah. uh, we're told they don't have a choice, we're told but we right. actually see in the novel that they do. Right, that's true. They it's just feel that they don't because right. they have this gigantic machine where if they resist what's going on, really bad things happen to them. Right, right. Well, guys, thanks for humoring me on um, bringing these different perspectives into the episode. Now, kind of uh, moving this over more toward the gaming side of the conversation, I'm curious what you guys think about bringing the structure of the Lord of the Rings trilogy into a tabletop environment. And by that, I mean, you know, in the Fellowship of the Rings, we have more than 100 pages before they even leave the Shire. And in the Return of the King, we have more than 100 pages after the climax of the uh, of the quest. And I know that generally in tabletop environments, we like to get right to the action. And kind of once they've beaten the big baddie, the session's over. That 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 is a common thing. Do you feel like um, RPG environments would benefit from more buildup and more um, post post climax um, exploration, or do you feel like they're just they're they're inherently different um, formats? So perhaps they're doing just fine the way they are. Um, I think the traditional um, by traditional, I mean. Uh, D&D, even DCC and stuff like that are sort of predicated more on action. But -hmm. I think there's a lot of independent and story games and stuff like that that you can either graft on or ideas that are from those games that you can either graft on to an existing sort of what we would, you know, Agatha would call a trad game, um, either as a prologue or a, you know, epilogue as it it appears in these books. Um, So I think that there there is room for that. It may not be in the same session. It might be like an entire sessions of like building the world i mean there's games like microscope right that are designed to build worlds that collaboratively speaking and you can talk about those kind of things and well maybe let me rephrase this a little bit because i i guess i'm not asking how could you do it if you wanted to do it i guess maybe i'm asking after having reread the return of the king did you walk away with a desire to maybe further explore your stories after the normal climax or do you feel like the way we normally end campaigns are is is fine and and maybe your experience is different maybe you don't end your campaign with the with the end of the baddie but my experience is that's often the end of the adventure of the campaign um i don't tend to have a big bad in my campaigns so i mean in in certain adventures i do but not in the campaigns so that's one thing 
when do you get to make an important decision mm-hmm. is really what gaming is about, in my opinion. Regardless of whether you're looking at a trad game or an indie game, it's the decision points that matter. Mm-hmm. If you're just listening to a narration or making decisions that don't really matter to anything that happens in the game, it's not as interesting. Yeah. So if you wanted to do that, rather than say, we're going to have this adventure and then we're going to follow through what happens to the end of the characters' lives and then they're going to go off to the West. You could say, for example, okay, you defeated you the rings in there. Quickly summarize at the table what happens um, almost Peter Jackson style because that is a really quick summary. Then you're throwing in another adventure on the road home. Uh, if you remember in The Hobbit, they said they didn't have any other serious adventures before he got home. Right, right. Uh-huh. So throw in an adventure. Right. Yeah. Things right. that happen on the way home and then put in the scouring of the Shire. Right. Yeah. Which is very much You can adventure. still have that uh, that sense of, oh, my God, there are consequences to this previous adventure mm-hmm. without making you sit and wait for it. Right, right. And I think that might be the answer, because with the scouring of the Shire, here we have kind of a mini adventure that follows this really epic adventure that you were just on. But that mini adventure exists as a reaction to what happened in your in your major adventure. So it's still very tabletop friendly. And it's a way of exploring what consequences your actions have had on the world around you. Right, right. And then in this case, you're using literally the same characters, right? Mary, Pippin, Sam, Frodo. But you can change focus in your setting to like these consequences. Like, again, if you read the appendices, you, you learn that uh, Celeborn and crosses the, the Anduin and he and Thruanduil in Mirkwood, you know, drive out the orcs out of Mirkwood. So that's a whole other aspect of the war uh, of the rings that's going on. Or, you know, um, up in the, um, by the Lonely Mountain where in the Hobbit took place, the dwarves and the men of the, you know, um, the lake fight off this invasion also. So this is changing focus. And then even after this war is over, uh, surely it can't just be the Shire where there's still bad things left over, right? Surely there must still be stuff in the deep, dark places of the world that happen. In the movie, the ring gets destroyed and evil is ended forever. Oh, good. In the book, (laughs) the ring gets destroyed and this particular threat is ended for this particular time. Yes. Right. Big difference. Right, One right. of my favorite parts was when the Lord of the Nazgul was destroyed. The book said something like, and he was never seen again in this age. Yes. Right. <laughs> He's seen again, right, just right. not in this age. Right. And then in the, um, I guess it's in the history of Middle Earth, they talk about, uh, so this is t- stuff that Christopher Tolkien summarized through, you know, all of his father's papers that in the fourth age, in the time of, of Aragorn's son's kingship, Eldarion's kingship, that there arose this sort of like Nazgul cult or, or basically a dark cult in Gondor, you know, young, disaffected nobles. And it's almost kind of Lovecraftian, right? They're doing this secret cult. There, there's, you know, rumors of human sacrifice. And he, he was thinking of doing another novel, never did turn it into anything. But there's a little fragment of, I don't know, like 10 pages of story or something like that. Um, and and he did not actually finish that in part because he thought it would take away from the ending of the Lord of the Rings. Right. But but evil's not ended forever. Mm-hmm. One of the things that I um, also was thinking about while reading this 
was how there was a scene, and I forget if it was Mary or Pippin, I think it was Mary, was riding into battle, and he was kind of thinking to himself how useless he is, how yes. everyone are these, they're like, they're all, they're all these great fighters. He is and just Korean. a baggage on the back. Yeah. Absolutely. You know, and it's kind of a common thing, um, maybe not in like sword and sorcery, but certainly like you watch Buffy the Vampire Slayer, you've got the Xander kind of character. And here you've got, you know, Mary riding in a battle feeling useless. And, and it's I'm all curious. fun and games until Xander loses an eye. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and I'm curious, can it be fun to play the character who isn't the the center of attention in battle, who isn't casting super fun spells? Um, can, can you have fun with that? Or is there not really a whole lot of space for that at the table? Well, that's interesting, Jeff, because you often play the wizard. I've noticed yeah. when we play stuff. And I often play like a halfling or a fighter or a thief type. So um, I think there is. Uh, yeah. I would agree. Yeah. <laughs> I would say yes. Yeah. yeah. Um, and I think we've also talked about, I think DCC is the most successful at keeping the sort of the less quote unquote powerful classes like viable um, mm-hmm. through the course of the game. Whereas in trad D&D, it seems like the sort of non-magical classes get left behind at high levels. Um, that's not necessarily the case, but it just seems that way. So, but even in trad D and D, where the focus is on exploration, right? I'm sorry, earlier editions of traditional D and D, where the focus is on exploration, all those character classes represent different ways to interact with the material. Mm -hmm. So you don't have to be necessarily ultra powerful to be successful, right? And I think um, just this the novel itself conveys that, right? We feel Mary feels useless. But then it turns out at the end, he's a hero, right? And so it's, and so is, you know, Pippin, for that matter, yes. right? Uh, so it's just a matter of scale. They're, they're great deeds. The world is so big, and they're great deeds. But there are, you know, he- there are still heroes at every level. Um, I mean, Fatty Bolger is a hero, right? He's a hero yes. of resistance, <laughs> right? Uh, and, and the bit with no man yeah. being, uh, which is, uh, you guys have read or seen Macbeth, I assume. Yeah, yeah. So you know that. In Lord of the Rings, Tolkien is answering Shakespeare's Macbeth in a way. So Macbeth can't is in can't be harmed till Dunsinane, to, or sorry, till Burnham Wood to Dunsinane shall come, and that is the Huans coming to uh, Helm's Deep in the second book, mm-hmm. and then no man of woman born shall harm Macbeth. You know, so it's a C-section. I wasn't of women born. Right. Yeah. Tolkien's answer is better. I am no man. (laughs) Right. And Mary is not a man either. Right. Mm -hmm. And is able to actually harm him, partly because the barrel blade that he's wielding was created specifically to fight the uh, Witch King of Angmar. Right, right. It's the last. Which is who this guy is. Right. This is the last. uh, It's implied in the appendices. It's the last. Last of the Dunedain of one of the three kingdoms, right? It's the tomb of one of the the last Dunedain. Right. And that was another thing I really enjoyed about reading these other articles, because in the Christian article, they were talking about how um, the heroes are often kind of a David in a David versus Goliath situation. And very much in that moment, um, Mary is definitely a David in a David Goliath situation. And then in the article talking about uh, homosexuality and sex in the Lord of the Rings, uh, that author was talking about how the flipped gender norms of um of Eowyn 
going off into battle dressed as a man um, was also um, something that he thought was really kind of cool and fun and exciting and also maybe spoke to Tolkien's desire to kind of explore non-traditional gender and sexuality stuff. Um, um, I don't know where I was going with that. (laughs) I mean, I think Eowyn, again, is also one of the most fascinating characters often overlooking discussions of The Lord of the Rings, right? She's, she's, uh, you know, is the, you know, the the most loyal daughter of the, you know, Rohan, but she's also incredibly straightened by her circumstances. You know, she's trained as a shield maiden. Um, She sees all the men going off to war. Right. It's not just like people like to reduce it to her, just her love for Aragorn, but her love for Aragorn is not really, it's a love of an ideal, right? Um, it's not sort of eros. It's a really. love of a chance to escape what role she has been forced in. Exactly. Um, and if you are going to go with your, uh, with your romantic hobbits viewpoint, a love of the escape of the role that you are forced in kind of fits. Right. Absolutely. There's nothing she fears more. Uh, nothing she fears but a cage. Right. Yes. Right. Yeah. I loved that. Dying old and, and bitter. Also, poor Faramir. You know, second favorite son. Yeah. Even his <laughs> wife choice. was his second choice. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> she was. Yeah. He was her second choice. Right. Right. But <laughs> Faramir is also the other uh, of the three fundamental misunderstandings of the Peter Jackson trilogy: scouring the Shire, uh, Aragorn having doubt, which he never has in the in the books. Right. Well, Aragorn, even being a reluctant hero, he is the opposite of a reluctant hero. Right. He's a guy who has given up everything that he wants to wait until he can do what he needs to do. Right. Right. And then, and then Faramir as like a borderline, uh, what was that freaking prison in Baghdad? You know, (laughs) you know, know, borderline, you know, it's like, oh, he's threatening to torture the hobbits in the second movie or the second or third movie. No, Faramir is like the most noble, he's second best, but second best to Aragorn is freaking incredible, right? (laughs) And he was originally intended to be part of the uh, nine. Right, right. Part of the fellowship, because he has that dream to go to Rivendell over and over and over and over, and only when he can't go. Right. Does Boromir go? Does Boromir go because he says he had the dream once? And Boromir is so vainglorious, we don't even know if he had the dream. Right, right. Now, it's interesting now, now that you bring to that point, though, I feel like that if Faramir didn't go, did go, then the fellowship would not have been broken. But then Frodo might not have gone to Mordor. It was necessary for the Fellowship to be broken. Well, Faramir, of all people, knew best the ways into Mordor. That's true. That's true. Because as, he as was the a Rathelian. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm sure that he would not have said, hey, Sirith Ungol is the best possible way to go. Initially. Yeah. Independencies, again, uh, it's implied that Aragorn actually has gone at least to the borders of Mordor, if not yes. in, in his youth. And that Aragorn has actually gone by many, many names. Uh, Thorngil was one of them. He was a, a captain of Gondor at one point. He's ridden with the Rohan, uh, uh, the riders of Rohan, and he's he's ninety at the beginning of the story, right? <laughs> yeah, I I really kind of think that uh, that Aragorn is Tolkien's answer to Conan. They have a lot of parallels between the two characters. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's. Cons- Considered a barbarian out of the far north, right? At least by yep. the Gondorians. Born are on a battlefield is right. almost is almost exactly the same. They both traveled widely under numerous names. They're both really the true king before they are. They both have to usurp the throne in a way from somebody who doesn't really deserve it or belong in it. There there are they're both master linguists. Mm. 
I like, uh, I was mentioning, I think, in the book club, I like that Aragorn gets a little bit salty when he's in the Houses of the Healing and the, the, the Gondorians are, like, being yeah. very pedantic about, like, all the herbs and stuff like that. He goes, just get me some of this king's foil, will you? <laughs> you know, right? <laughs> Trust me, I know what I'm doing. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and actually, Hoy, I really, I, I, was it you who was talking about the, the uh, ranger healing? Right. Right in the in the in the patron book club before this, uh, it might have been. I remember talking about how um, at least Tim Cask and a few of the early D and D players uh, were saying that although they were given spells, he really considered it knowledge rather than spells. It was just it was just created as a spell as a as a mechanic that was easy to sort of put in. But he really considered that rangers should have abilities rather than spells. That would make sense. Yeah. So. That's not explicit in the text, though. No, it's definitely not explicit <laughs> exactly. in the text. It's definitely in that's, the... that's what they said to Hoy, too. I was like, well, but it might have been helpful if they had written that down. Well, it's the same argument. <laughs> it's the same way they always talk about, like, hit points. What are hit points? You know, it's all this, like, weird... Um, exactly. And, and I think I even said this in the book club. I feel like that OD&D, as written, is kind of like a commentary on a lost text. It's a commentary on how D&D was played, but it's not actually D&D. You know, you know the actual the three, three yeah. LB book, LBBs, little brown books. You know, that's fair. Yeah, fair. <laughs> yeah. Daniel, I know you love this trilogy, and there's so much to talk about. Was there anything you really want us to explore before we wrap this up? Uh, have you read all the appendices? Oh, thank you for asking. Uh, no. <laughs> yeah, I, I do that from the book club. I just wanted to have to say it for the thing. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So um, I I really wanted to read them. My my heart was in the right place. But once my eyes got onto the page, they would just start blurring. I wasn't I expecting you. I wasn't yeah. expecting you to read the genealogy. <laughs> I, I don't know, but it's funny because, like, you know, I know that you and Hoy love them. I know that in the Patron Book Club, Mason was a huge fan. Um, but Adam was like me, where it's just like, I no, I can, I could, I, I tried, but I couldn't. I, I don't read them every time I read the book. Yeah. Have you read them aloud to your kids or no? No, no, I never read the <laughs> appendices aloud. I never read the appendices when I was young, except for maybe a little bit about the language sections. You know, it's like, oh, here's the Elven alphabet, right? But. I do think it's almost like a really good D and D DVD commentary. It's not necessary to enjoy the novel, but you get an extra layer of enjoyment out of it yes. when you do read them. And when you have like the timeline, so you can look and see what happened when, right? And see how things are connected. That does actually increase your uh, enjoyment, really. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. There's a lot of stuff there where they kind of zoom out and you find out like where Gandalf was on a certain day. Like that, they had been tracking uh, Gollum all along. They knew where he was was all along. Um, well, they lose him at times. They lose him at times, but they, they were tracking him. And that um, again, you find out stuff about Aragorn's past, which is very interesting. You find out more about the fall of the Numenorians, and you know just how much of a tragedy it is that there hasn't been a king in Gondor for a thousand years. You know that Gimli gets to go west. Yeah, with Legolas. Mm-hmm. Speaking of your uh, couples, right. Right. Non-traditional yes. couples, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but if we're if we're going to have a couple minutes left, I would say the hero of the trilogy, Sam. Oh, yes. Without a doubt, without a doubt, it begins Absolutely. with Sam and it ends with Sam coming home. Yeah, yeah. and he's my absolute favorite. Right, and I, I think I mentioned this. I think it was the very first episode we talked about this. I think that one of the things that Sam had to learn, he had loyalty and love and all that all along, but he had to learn compassion. And that was that that was something that he had to learn. He had it and he had to learn and he was very to much broaden it, yeah. to broaden it. And he had very much a very um, he was very much locked into the class structure of the Shire. He was, you know, the below the stairs person and, and Frodo was the gentleman. 
and he had to learn compassion. And, and when he started learning pity for Gollum and he looked at the men of the East and said, maybe they didn't really want to be here, you know, <laughs> you know, when he saw them marching up through Athelion and stuff like that. He had to learn that in order to become that, that hero at the end that could help Frodo that last few miles, you know. Yeah. I also thought there was something really beautifully insightful about uh, the way Tolkien talked about Frodo's empathy for for Gollum. The fact that uh, Frodo was able to have compassion and empathy for Gollum because he could relate to him. Like they had these similar struggles. And I think that that's also kind of universally true, that it's easier for people to have empathy for people who've been through something similar that you are either going through or have been through. Which is another fundamental flaw in the Peter Jackson misunderstanding in his film, because he did not have empathy for Frodo because if, or sorry, for Gollum, because if Gollum can come back, then I can. Mm -hmm. He had, he had no intention of coming back. Right. His expectation was that it was a one-way trip. And when you read the books more than once, you discover, you realize like when he says he'd take the ring back in Rivendell, he knew it was a one-way trip. Mm Mm-hmm. It's not because he's going to come back. It's because he has compassion. It's it's not self-interested. It's not selfish. It's, I don't know, there's so many things. And he doesn't ever think like, oh, no, Gollum is a good guy and Sam's a bad guy. Right. Like, right. Frodo goes through everything with very, very clear eyes compared to any of the other characters. Right. And it's Sam's development of that kind of a clear view that makes him the most beloved mayor Hobbiton's ever had. Right. <laughs> yes. Sir Mayor. <laughs> right. Uh, I mean, I guess if you're getting into, again, I, again, I don't know enough about Christian theology, but this is where you would argue that Frodo is actually the Christ figure and maybe not Aragorn, right? That he knows what's coming to coming and he willingly, you know, waits in the garden, so to speak. Right. Um, uh, Gandalf rises from the dead, so. Right. I guess you have three Christ figures then. You got Aragorn from... <laughs> it's the Holy Trinity. The Holy Trinity. So, guys, this has been a fantastic conversation. Uh, Daniel, do you have any projects that have recently come out that you would like our listeners to know about or anything that you're working on that they should keep an eye out for? I am uh, working on a lot of things. There is another volume of Dispatches coming out. Nice. Hopefully relatively soon. And... After I get done recording with you, hopefully I will finish off the final version of Gnome Jambalaya. Gnome Jambalaya. All right. What's this? It is a funnel for gnomes. And nice. Do you remember the gnome class back in Crawl? Yes. Well, this is a funnel to use fairy animals and gnomes and make them characters for your DCC game um, with the original author's permission. Very and nice. um, I don't want to butcher his name on because... On, uh, my pronunciation will be bad, I'm sure. <laughs> but, uh, like, that's one thing. If I'm reading out loud the Lord of the Rings to my kids, my elvish is and my dwarvish is not anything like what Tolkien say. What the hell are you talking? <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome. There you go. All right. So our next two episodes, episode 65, will be on Andre Norton's Web of the Witch World. And episode 66 will be on Lord Dunsany's The Charwoman's Shadow. Woohoo. Um, yeah. Daniel, if people want to find more about you online or get in contact with you, what is the best way for them to do that? Yeah, I have the, Rev- the, sorry, the Raven Croaking's Nest blog. And I'm on Facebook and I'm on the uh, Goodman Games forums. And I'm on Reddit, so I'm not hard to find. Cool. There you go. Boy, how can folks find us? Sure. Uh, if you want to give us some feedback, you can send us an email at, at appendixnbookclub um, at, at gmail.com. 
Uh, we're also on Twitter at, at Appendix underscore N. We're on MeWe and Facebook as well. And uh, if you like us, please rate us and review us on your podcatcher of choice. It does help people find us. And Jeff, how about our uh, Patreon? Sorry, can't you also say Jeff and Hoy, Jeff and Hoy, Jeff and Hoy right, three, three times, times in, in, the, a in a mirror? <laughs> <laughs> I think Raphael does that every once in a while. <laughs> <laughs> yes, he does. Absolutely. He conjures us quite a bit. Uh, so uh, we would like to thank Mason Coffee and Adam Styers for joining us for our patron book club for this episode. That was a lot of fun. Um, also, we would like to thank our, um, we've, we've got a bunch of patrons, but we're going to go ahead and thank a few of them right now. Vasily Kalaman, Eric Johnson, Robbie Fioto, Andy Action, Trevor Bramble, Ray Otis, Joseph, and William Souter. If you would like to show your support, uh, please head on over to patreon.com slash appendix and book club. And Hoy and I would also like to take a moment and say that a, uh, a patron of our show and uh, that patron's spouse, who was a previous guest on the show, they're having some um, they're having some difficulties right now that they're going through. And we, Hoy and I just want to say that we are thinking about you both, and we're sending you our love and our hugs. Yeah. And yeah, Hoy, did you want to add to that? No, just uh, please uh, hang in there. We love you both. Perfect. And and before we go, can I just say I really really love this podcast and appreciate what you guys are doing. There is, there are so many episodes where I get things that I didn't get from my initial reading or even my second or third reading. So the, the plurality of voices, plurality of voices, the, it, it's a great podcast. Thank you so much. That means so much yeah, to us. Uh, we enjoy learning so much from our all, I guess. So, so good. All right. And thanks for being on again. You are very welcome. See you in the stacks. Read on. Ciao. The library is closed.